Hey, weirdos. I'm Elena. And I'm Ash. And this is Morbid. Finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up and he went completely out of his mind. April Fools! We're just joking. We're just joshing you. You guys probably thought just now that you were listening to Morbid Podcast. You were like, oh, I accidentally clicked on the wrong podcast to listen to. Spotify had a glitch. The wrong podcast, but the right podcast. Yes, and it was your two favorite podcasts that got switched up. Little Sleep and Morbid. How silly. Wow. Best podcasts there are facts facts straight facts that's it um but yeah i'm not elena i'm eliza i'm not ash i'm riss and this isn't morbid no it's the little sleep much reading podcast <laughs> plays the theme song again <laughs> now we play the morbid theme song <laughs> Yes! Oh my god. <laughs> We're funny. Um, girlies, please don't get us for copyright or impersonation. We just love you. Hey, get us in Morbid Network. I know. We could be in Morbid Network. You could buy us. Mm-hmm. We would love to be bought. And we could do like like scary only like scary and crime only book reviews. They don't have a, a, a book podcast in, in Morbid Network that I found. And we're perfect for it because we're perfect. super fans. We're a duo. We're little we're little freaks. Little freaks. Witchy ladies. Witchy ladies. Could possibly be not alive. I don't know. We don't know. And we're besties. Besties. So y'all just think about it, please. We're technically... <laughs> Not technically, but technically related. Yes. <laughs> I'm nodding my head like I know what Marissa is talking about, but. We, we both came from uh, the same mother who could be either Sam Hunt or. Yeah. Uh, Francis Brane. I'm not sure. Not Francis Brane. <laughs> it's got to be Sam. Uh. Charles Pratt birthed us. We are both. Ooh, what? Not Charles. We sprouted from his head, like, uh, (laughs) like um, Athena. Athena. Yeah. Maybe we're both split reincarnations of Shirley Jackson or Mary Shelley. Yes. It could be. I see it. I see it. I see it a lot. Goth queens. So because we are morbid but not morbid today we wanted to do a little bit of true crime true crime spooky how do you guys feel about that you guys okay with that they better be yeah i'm okay with it so i figured figured you guys would be yeah um everyone go pre-order elena's book by the way yes what's the the let me get that the butcher and the wren the butcher and the wren what a fucking sick title and the the art for it's really really cool 
um, it's like an eye and then you could see, I guess, the reflection in the eye and it's like, it looks like a scary slasher man. Also, do we think it's going to take place in New England? Because I really hope it does. That would be cool. I feel like it has to. Like me, those girlies are so proud of being from New England. I always write stuff that takes place in New England, so I would assume they would be the same way. But the picture kind of looks like the bayou. If you look at the man, it looks like there's um, Spanish moss growing behind him. Okay, Liza, look at you. Little, little plant identifier. I'm just a botanist. Oh, my God, I'm so excited. Um, who else is excited? Horror, th- thriller, crime. Horror, thriller, crime. Horror, thriller, crime. Horror, thriller. Oh, her name is Ren. That's cool. Like little Ren, like Renbow. I'm so excited. Wow. What a time to be alive. What a blessed that we are in the same timeline as Elena and Ash. I know. Like, I'm like, wow, it sucks to be alive. And then I think about it and I'm like, wow, I'm alive at the same time as like a lot of cool friggin' people. Harry Styles. That's it. Elena and Ash. Elena and Ash. Um, you and me. Me, you, Nanny. Nanny. <laughs> Um, mm. that's about it all right <laughs> that about wraps it up hey <gasps> harry styles new album any day now i think we're getting a single on march 25th that's my sister's birthday also kind of weird that he would pick that day since it's like zane r.i.p day that is funny i'm so excited i'll throw up probably i'm also really trying to decide if I should buy that $105 pleasing sweatshirt but like I don't actually I like don't have that kind of money but I want it so bad maybe you can make me a counterfeit one like with uh, I straight up will let me go look at it right now yeah could you if, if I send you the Venmo for an extra large um blue crew neck from like Michael's can you paint that on it for me <laughs> literally I I could just Get it off Amazon, the the crew neck, and yeah. then yeah, and then you could paint it. I might buy some of the nail polish though, honestly, because I have this vision of a little shelf that just has pleasing nail polish on it. I know. I really want the nail polish, especially it, now that I have one set. You need both, and like a hundred five dollar sweatshirt, no, sixty dollar set of five nail polishes, a little better, mm-hmm. little better. But my favorite thing from pleasing is the um, illuminizing moisturizer that he came out with the first time. Mm-hmm. So maybe those are good, too. If you spend your whole paycheck on pleasing, then it's OK. It's OK. If you can't pay your rent because pleasing, Harry will come and pay your rent for you. You know, he'll do it. He'll do it. Once again, I'm saying Harry Styles. Why so expensive? I know. What a bitch, honestly. Like, I love him, but King, come on. Come on, King. And, like, I get, like, oh, it's a luxury brand, blah, blah. But he's, he's, he's Harry fucking Styles. What did you read this week, Bestie? I read um, In Cold Blood by Truman Capote. And what murder case is that? Or what crime case, I should say? 
Um, it is the murder of the Clutter family. Very famous story. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read Murder in the Bayou by Ethan Brown, which is an investigation of the Jefferson Davis eight. <laughs> um, who's excited? Me. I'm excited. And we're going to do this, guys. Like, we decided to do it morbid style. So we're not really rating our books, but I think we're going to talk about whether we liked them or not. Yeah. After, but we're going to focus on the actual crime. So get cozy. Get ready to be spooked. And this week, you're probably blessed with this episode of Little Sleep and two episodes of Morbid. Mm-hmm. So your week is just full of crime. So do we want to... Um hop into this dark, scary, uh, swampy pool. Let's do it. Let's talk about this um, very scary murder. So um, this story mainly takes place in a small rural town called Holcomb, Kansas, where everyone knew everyone. The town was run mostly by farmers and landowners. Um, They were all church-going people who looked out for each other, who saw each other every Sunday. Um, They threw events with each other, and yeah, they were very close-knit. So on Sunday, November 15th, 1959, Nancy Ewald stepped out of her father's car onto the River Valley farm and knocked on the door of the Clutter family. Nancy Ewald had plans to go to church with her dear friend, also named Nancy, um, Nancy Clutter. She waited and there was no answer. So she went around knocking on each door. She noticed that the door to Mr. Clutter's office was unlocked, but she thought better than to go in she also noticed that their cars were in the garage but still no matter what door she knocked on no answer so she went back to her father's car and was like what the hell um but she wouldn't have said that because she she, no (laughs) and her dad was like "Hmm, i don't know let's go down and see if susan kidwell knows anything so susan was nancy clutter's best friend And they figured that she would know where the clutters went if anyone did. So they went down, they picked up Susan, and they returned to the farm. Susan and Nancy then again went around knocking on each door with no answer. They know that the clutters would not have overslept in Miss Miss Church. Um, Mr. Clutter was a very virtuous man. He did not drink. He didn't really like to be around people who drank. He was very strict about their church going. So they figured maybe they were up late last night for some reason. And Nancy and Susan decided that they should go and wake them up. Um, So they entered the house. The first thing they noticed that they thought was weird was Nancy Clutter's purse was on the floor opened. They continued upstairs to her room. 
And when Susan opened the door, she immediately screamed and ran out of the house. Susan Kidwell and Nancy Ewald had walked in on their friend, 16-year-old Nancy, dead in her bed. So obviously the police were called. They went through the house slowly. Nancy's room first. They found her tied up, laid face down, shot in the back of the head. She had a robe on. She had slippers on. It looked like she was, you know, um, maybe she had gotten up from her room. With the search of her room, they had also found a gold watch in the toe of one of her shoes. Then they went to the next room. They It was a 15-year-old Kenyon Clutter's room. Kenyon was missing. He was not in his bed. Um, but they did notice his glasses were on the bedside table. Then they went to the next room, which happened to be the mother, Bonnie Clutter's room. She was 45. She was tied up to the bed um, and also shot in the head. She and her husband did not share a room at this time. He slept in the master bedroom on the first floor. So when they go to his room, 48, they notice he's also missing from the room and his billfold is scattered and kind of like gone through, rummaged through. So they're kind of confused because they have found Nancy and Bonnie dead, but Kenyon and Herb, Herbert Clutter are, are missing. So they go down into the basement. Um, the basement in this house was kind of refinished. It was sort of known as Nancy and Kenyon's playroom. Um, Nancy would sew a lot of things. She would make pillows. Um, she would refurbish old furniture. And Kenyon was a little bit of a tinkerer, I guess. He would build a lot of things. And so this is kind of where a lot of that stuff ended up and where he did a lot of his work. Kenyon was found on a couch, a couch that him and Nancy had found and kind of redone. Um, there were pillows with sayings on it that Nancy had made around him. Um, a pillow was under his head and he was shot in the head. Mr. Clutter was found in the boiler room next to the, the furnace. He was laying on a cardboard box. Um, his throat had been slashed and he was also shot in the head. So police were horrified, obviously. And the only real clue that they had was half of a footprint that was made on the cardboard box in Herb's blood. The house was flooded with detectives, crime scene people. The town was devastated and terrified. The way that the murders were being very calculated, the knots that were made to tie up um, the family members were very intricate knots. All of the casings from the bullets had been collected, picked up. The way that the two men were separated and taken to the basement, um, all these things were very calculated and brutal. And also the way that there were almost these compassionate moves made, um, for instance, laying Mr. Clutter down on a cardboard box, 
um, putting a pillow over Kenyon's head, possibly the way that Nancy was shot in the back of the head instead of the front of the head. The police felt as though for these reasons, their suspect was probably someone from the town who knew the clutters. But the police were also not convinced that it was a robbery. While it was known that the Clutters were one of the most well-off families in Holcomb, it was uh, it wasn't really a question if they had money or not. They had money. Just the day before, Mr. Clutter had even signed over a very expensive. Um, he took out a life insurance policy on, I believe, himself with double indemnity. So it wasn't a question if, if if they had money or not, but it was very known in town that Mr. Clutter did not use cash. He constantly wrote checks and Mrs. Clutter still had her rings on. She had a necklace on. There wasn't jewelry that was misplaced. They couldn't really find anything. They did take the um, a housekeeper through the house to see if she found anything misplaced. And she noticed that Kenyon had a small portable radio that was missing from his room. And she noticed that Mr. Clutter's binoculars were missing. But other than that, everything was fine in the house. So the police went to the obvious suspect, which was the last person to see the Clutters alive. Nancy's boyfriend, Bobby Rupp. Nancy and Bobby had been going steady for quite some time now. They were just out late the night before. They went to go see a midnight movie together. You know, Nancy, it's been said that Nancy liked to flirt. She liked to talk to other guys, but she knew she always said that she was in love with Bobby. Unfortunately, Mr. Clutter wanted Nancy to stop seeing Bobby because of a difference in religion. They were Methodist and Bobby was Catholic, so he could not see it working out. Um, So that gave Bobby a motive. Not only that, but he knew them. He knew the family. He knew the house. He knew where their rooms were. He probably knew what time they went to bed. And also, Nancy was the only one who was shot in the back of the head almost as if the killer couldn't look at her face, maybe. So the lead investigator obviously had to take Bobby in. They talked. And after talking with him for a little bit, he knew that Bobby had nothing to do with it. Um, Bobby even had, he even took a polygraph test, which we know how we feel about those, but it happened and he was cleared. But, Poor Bobby. Um, Some people in the town were never quite convinced since he was even a suspect. They did not treat him great. And he eventually had to switch schools and everything. Very sad. So with him being cleared, the police really had nothing to go on. Then another clue came to light. Um, A photo of the basement, um, a crime scene photo in the basement of the boiler room where Mr. Clutter was, there was another footprint and it wasn't seen by the investigators. It was only seen by the flash of the camera. Um, It looked like it was almost in dust or something. They noticed that this boot print was different from the other one. So now they had the clue that they were looking for two killers 
But again, that's still really all they had to go on. They had tips flooding in, but nothing was holding weight. The Clutters had two older daughters who they interviewed, Beverly and Ivana. And they couldn't think of anyone who would have any ill intentions towards their parents, towards their family. They couldn't think of any kind of red flags that they saw. Nothing. Of course, people from the town were like, oh, one time Mr. Clutter fired this guy for being drunk on the job. One time he sued this guy for crashing an airplane into his peach trees. True story. All these different things. But none of it was really holding any weight. They had a suspect for a while who um, one of the workers on the farm was working on the farm and he saw someone in the clutters house after the clutters had been killed. And so he immediately called the police. They came and um, arrested this man who was like, oh, I was like, I heard about what happened and I was just trying to come see the crime scene. And they were like, where's your car? It was down the road. Um, it had a similar shotgun in it to the ones that had killed the the Clutter family. They asked him how he got in the house. And I guess he like shimmied through a water pipe or something. Very crazy to me. But this man, he was cleared. He was just a kook. But eventually um, an inmate came forward. His name was Floyd Wells. Floyd claimed he had worked on the Clutter's farm for a period of time. And Mr. Clutter had once bragged to him about money, mentioning a safe and $10,000. Floyd had mentioned this to a fellow inmate, Richard, also known as Dick Hitchcock. Upon release, Dick said he was going to get that family good. Uh, Floyd didn't really think much of it until he saw the headlines in the papers. Dick was a charmer. He came from a very well-off family. Everyone in in their town thought that they were just great, upstanding people, and it seemed like they were. And Dick definitely used that to his advantage. He loved to act like a great, upstanding citizen. And then when you were looking the other way, he was committing crimes. He was a con artist, always cashing bad checks. So he had some, some grand dreams, and he wanted money. And so... Hearing that from the inmate Floyd, he was like, yeah, I'm going to get that rich family. The police now had an idea who they were looking for, but they didn't know where he was. So Dick was actually with his buddy, Perry Smith, in Mexico, um, about to work their way back to the U.S. When they got into the U.S., they immediately started passing off bad checks. They didn't have a lot of money, but they needed things, so... Um, They made their way back to Kansas, passing bad checks the whole way. A store recognized the man and held them there until the police arrived. Perry Smith thought of himself as a little bit. He reminds me, at least, of like an art school boy. Like he's like, oh, I'm so intelligent and everyone else is stupid. And listen to these like this, these cool phrases that I wrote down in my notebook and these weird words like aphrodisiac. Like, okay, Perry, (laughs) your name's Perry. Um, So it's also something to say that both Dick and Perry had been um, physically 
altered in some way. Um, Dick had gotten into an accident, which left his face a little bit deformed. So if you look at him, the left side of his face is like lower than the right side. Um, And Perry got into a motorcycle accident, which broke his legs. And so they were, they stopped growing. They were very short um, and they had very bad scars on them. And they pained him quite a bit, which honestly, (laughs) the two had met in jail when they were both serving time. And again, Dick is a big talker. He, he was always, you know, shooting the shit, I guess. Um, And Perry is a listener. He, Perry also bragged one time that he had killed a black man. Of course, he bragged about that. So that caused quite a few of the inmates to actually take a liking to him and feel as though he was harder than how he portrayed. Perry had a temper um, that was easily ignited. And so did Dick. But I think that Dick was more of a liar. Perry also had lots of family issues. Um, I think it's worth mentioning. His father was Irish. His mother was full Indian, um, which when they say Indian, I believe that they mean Native American. And they met, they had four kids together. Perry's older brother ended up causing his wife to commit suicide and then killing himself. His one sister ended up falling out a window, but it's not Perry's pretty sure that she committed suicide, but he never wanted to call it that. And then his his other sister is married and lived a good life by all accounts. Perry ended up in, you know, foster care. He claimed that nuns beat him. He had he wet the bed a lot and he would get beat for that a lot. He had some issues, but again, People thought that he was tougher than he was because of the things that he bragged about doing. And since Perry was a little bit of, you know, a little art school boy, like I said, he was a dreamer. He wanted to, he dreamed of like treasure in the ocean and things like that. And Dick being the con artist that he was would pretend like he believed these stories and legends simply so that he could manipulate Perry and, I don't know, I guess, find ways to make money with Perry. So that's how they found each other. Perry got out of jail first and he was on his own. And then Dick contacted him one day and was like, hey, I found a good gig. And this gig was the information that Dick got on the Clutter family um, and the money that they supposedly had in a safe somewhere. So once they were taken into custody, they swore uh, to each other that they wouldn't talk. But Dick would think about his family a lot. He did have sons. He had children, but also his parents who seemed to always be paying off his debts. It was kind of a running joke in the town that you could tell how much trouble Dick was in by how many horses were on his family's farm. Because anytime he did a bad check or something, his father would just like 
give the people a horse to kind of like pay off them, pay, pay off Dick's debt. So Dick was friendly to the police um, when they were taken into custody and he was more of the talker than Perry was. Perry was just kind of like, yeah, okay, whatever. So one day the police were transferring them and they were in two separate police cars. The car that had Dick was in the front and the car that had Perry was in the back. So one of the police officers said to Perry, you know, he's been talking and he's been telling us everything. And at that moment, you could see Dick in the police car in the front and he was talking to the police. And of course, that cracked Perry. Perry could see him talking. He felt that, you know, he probably was spilling everything. So the two both confessed. Perry, Dick agreed that it it was his idea. He said that it was his idea to do it, whatever. But the reason why he brought Perry is because Perry had claimed to have killed um, a black person before, which he did not, by the way. He didn't. He just was saying that he did. There was even one one point after the murders where Perry said to Dick, I can't believe I did that. I just did the unforgivable. And Dick was like, but you've done it before. And he was like, oh, well, that was a black person. So it was different. Which also, if you're going to read In Cold Blood, I will give you trigger warnings because obviously there's mention of minors being killed. And there is one animal death, although it's not described or anything. But there's also, uh, it does say the N-word and it does say the F-word. So I just want to warn everyone for that. So Dick said that he um, thought that Perry was hard and enough, hard enough to um, be able to, to do what he hadn't. So Dick claimed that they broke in and they were going to look for the safe. They agreed that any witnesses would have to be killed immediately. There was no, no leaving witnesses. And Dick claimed that Perry did all of the killings, that he shot all of the people. And Dick had no part of it. Dick was just kind of robbing, I suppose. Perry had claimed originally that Dick had killed the two women, Nancy and Bonnie. But then when it was time for him to confess, he wouldn't he wouldn't sign off in the confession because he felt he according to him, he felt bad for Dick's mom. So he ended up taking the blame for all of it. But The two had brought Kenyon and the father down into the basement. Perry stayed down there with them while Dick went looking for a safe that did not exist. Um, The two men had stolen that radio, the binoculars, and they got $50. When they couldn't find the safe, uh, Perry got mad, supposedly, and slashed um, Mr. Clutter's throat. It's also said that Perry is the one who laid the box down, who um, put the pillows under the heads, um, did these almost compassionate acts, which are very strange. You know, obviously, the only people who know what happened in that house that night are the clutters and more so Dick and Perry. And so this all the back and forth of like, oh, well, I only did this killing and he only did that one and blah, 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 blah. We'll never really know the truth. We'll never know exactly what happened in that house. And 
maybe that's for the best. Both Dick and Perry were convicted and sentenced to death. And so they have both been killed. After that night, though, not only were their families completely different, the two girls, the two older clutter girls, their lives were obviously completely changed. But also the whole town who now had this fear and distrust instilled in them. This is one of those stories that you hear like your grandparents say where they're like, after that happened, we locked the doors. Yeah, these people locked their doors. A lot of them moved away from the town because they were afraid. It was scary and it was brutal. Hey guys, this is future Marissa um, editing this in because I forgot to talk about it when we filmed the episode and it's really important. So I'm going to do it now. One reason why I really loved the books that me and Liza picked this week is because Liza's book, as we're going to see in a minute, is a really great example of what an author should do when they are writing a true crime type book. They should have the idea of justice or the victims heavily in mind not as pieces of a story but as real people unfortunately the same can't be said about in cold blood by truman capote um i would say he's a great example of what not to do truman saw the case of the clutter family murders in a newspaper and you know he grew up in a small town many small towns actually um, so he, he knew small towns. He was a small town boy and he was captivated with how something this shocking would affect such a small town, such a close knit, such a loving town. It has been said that upon arriving in Holcomb, Truman said he wasn't concerned on if this case would be solved or not. He didn't really care what the police did. He was just here to get the story and to get the perspective of the people in town. Of course, reading this book, you could argue, and even maybe if you know anything about Truman Capote's life, he became very, very captivated um, and consumed with this case and with these murderers. And um, it took somewhat of a toll on him. So maybe it did change his mind in the end. But you also have to question his closeness to the murderers and his almost lack of consideration for the family and the people of the town. Um, It's clear that Truman has some great journalism skills as the information he got was truly amazing. And the book is pieced together very well, um, in my opinion. But was it even done tastefully? You know, at the time of the murders, the Clutters had two older daughters who did not live with them at the time. So thankfully, their lives were spared and they live or lived. I'm, I'm not sure on their current whereabouts. They never really spoke about what happened. And it seemed as though most of the family, not the, just the two daughters, but, you know, other relatives of the family didn't want to shed light on this tragedy, which that's a family decision. A lot of them feel like this tragedy is almost reoccurring because of this book. They were really upset by it, and they were upset by Truman's actions. They were upset about, if you look on the back of the book, my copy, and I think most other copies, have um, a picture of Truman Capote standing in front of the house where this awful massacre occurred. Um, The house that was once 
you know, this, this house that was brought to life and fixed up by this family, that this is where they made their lives, where they had their children and their pets, and they celebrated holidays together. Um, and this horrible thing happened. And there's a picture of Truman standing in front of the house. A lot of people took offense to that. And they felt that that was somewhere he had no business being. And he shouldn't, he definitely shouldn't have posted, not posted, but he definitely shouldn't have taken a picture in front of this house almost as something posed and collected. I don't know. Very, it's, it's a little strange. They feel that all this book really did was draw attraction to this tragedy that they totally wanted to keep in their past. This obviously is a solved murder. It's not unsolved. Since it's solved, it's not like he's trying to find justice, and he even said he wasn't really interested in that. The family did not profit from this book. Truman did. At least I could not find any evidence of money going to the older daughters or the family fund or the town or anything. All this book really did was allow more eyes um, to be on this family tragedy tragedy and to allow more people to learn about these horrible murders there is a documentary i can't remember exactly where you can watch it i think it might have been amazon prime but don't quote me on that and it is called cold-blooded some distant family members and daughters of the older flutter girls um, are in this documentary you can hear from friends townspeople And you can hear more about how this family feels, how this town feels about this tragedy that happened and how they feel about this book that came out. I would say this book really didn't do much um, for the fiction world and for the case. Maybe that's something for writers, especially nonfiction writers, to consider. If you're writing about other people's lives, who is that benefiting? What, What is, what's the outcome of this going to be? These are things you have to consider as a writer. And I think perhaps as we get into Liza's book, you will see exactly what I mean about how there is a difference and how there is kind of um, a more moral way to do this. So, yeah. And yeah, that's the Clutter family murders. Um, do you want to know something really interesting? I'll, I'll get into mine later, obviously in like a few seconds, but the town where my murders take place um, had been riddled with murder for a long, long time. Um, and there had even been some murders in the early days of the, of the town, like decades before this book takes place in the 2000s. This case takes place, I should say, because it's true. It's not a book. And some of them, they even thought for a second that it was connected to the Clutter family murders. But then that obviously was not, didn't end up happening. But while I was reading the beginning of this book, I remember it saying like there was some weird connection to murders here that they were like, is there any connection to the Clutter family murders? But then that was like debunked rather quick. But I thought that was interesting. Wow, look at us doing it again. Yeah, the Clutter family murders are so, is so, I had never heard the full story. So I was like, glad to hear you explain it because I DNF'd in cold blood. Mm-hmm. But it's it's one of those murders that's like, so like, this is going to sound bad, but like, it's so American. Like, yeah. It's like a part of American lore. Mm-hmm. They have like whole Criminal Minds episodes based off of it. Like, it's just like such a thing. Yeah. And it kind yeah. of 
the, the axe, the Velisca axe murders a little. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yeah. Which murders do be repeating. Murders. Yeah. It's very interesting how that happens. My story is a very different kind of murder than yours. And the minute I was like, this is very different is you said something that there was like weird acts of remorse and that was not happening mm. on the bayou. Because obviously we know even when murderers show remorse, they're still evil. Like, yes, they're still evil people. But there are murderers that do show that weird psychological remorse. And then there are murderers that talk about their victims in the way your perpetrator talked about his imaginary killing in that the people that they killed weren't even people. So it did. Right. Which is just like even worse. And don't you just think like, like his mom was full Native American and she had a lot of, she like died of like an alcoholic overdose and like all these horrible things. And I'm just like, don't you think that she um, experienced a lot of racism in her life? And like, can't you see that and understand that people are people? Right. So fucked. Wow. That's crazy though. Yeah. The Clutter family Rest in peace. Honestly, Nancy was the American girl that we all strove wanted to be when we were 12. Yeah. Damn. How sad. I wonder what that town is like today. I know. Let's go to it. Because if something like that happens in your town, especially if it's out of the ordinary, because some places that's not out of the ordinary, um, which I'll get to um but yeah i'd like to go i'd like to see what's going on over there or like see like a documentary about like what it's like now she would like to see it i would like to see it um i guess without tell us about your murders i'll go ahead um i read murder in the bayou by ethan brown all of his investigating just to give you a time frame was done in around 2011 it started out as a article he's a journalist it started out as an article on medium like the like free blog posting site um and then it got it popped off so much that they he was able to put all of his findings to a book but yeah let's get let's get right into it our setting is Jefferson Davis Parish in the town of Jennings, Louisiana. And these murders of the Jeff Davis eight take place between 2005 and 2009. On May 20th, 2005, the bloated decomposing body of 28 year old Loretta Lewis is found floating in the river by a fisherman. What follows will be the death of Ernstine Daniels Patterson, who was 30 years old, Kristen Gary Lopez, who was 21 years old, Whitney Dubois, who was 26, Laconia Muggy Brown, who was 23, Crystal Shea Benoit Zeno, who was 24, and Brittany Gary, who was 17 years old, until the eighth and final victim, 26-year-old Nicole Gilroy is found dead off the inter- off Interstate 10 in 2009. These women were became known as the Jeff Davis 8, and it became an investigation to find out who killed them. When you look at how similar their deaths were, almost, I'll get into like their causes of death in a minute, but they were all found either dumped in a body of water, like a river or canal or bayou, or uh, thrown off the interstate. 
so for a while with such a large quantity of murders and you'll see the similarities between these women too people thought maybe it was a serial killer so just keep that in mind and i already kind of said this but let me just say their story was spread widely due to the journalistic efforts of ethan brown and his book murder on the bayou and he invested this case better than the police which we will get into later because i i just can't believe the incompetence i always think that when i'm listening to morbid too i'm like why can't police do shit about shit and that's very clear in this case so their causes of death our first victim I don't think we actually know the cause of death of the first victim. The problem was their bodies were so decomposed at this point that it was extremely hard to tell how they had died. But Patterson and Brown had had their throats slit confirmed. The other bodies were in too advanced a state of decomposition to determine their cause of death. But it it came to be sort of, I guess, assumed that all of their cause of death was asphyxiation. So we have similar causes of death, similar dumping grounds. It all seems like, okay, this has got to be the work of a serial killer. It's got to be one crazy person. Jennings, Louisiana was a very small town where almost once you really get a close microscope up to it, everybody was connected. So even the victims, Kristen, Gary Lopez, and Brittany Gary were cousins. Brittany had lived with Crystal Benoit, one of the other victims for a short period before her death. And many of these women, in fact, all of them were involved and known in the local sex work scene in Jennings. There was also a very complex drug scene in Jennings, like so many small towns throughout the United States experience. And another common denominator between these women is that not only were they sex workers, but they all experienced drug addiction, mental illness, and poverty. So here you already have a set of eight victims that the world and society and law enforcement has decided aren't worthy of justice because of who they were, which we, of course, know is bogus. Everybody should be treated the same. But it's a pattern when you um, get into these true crime stories that sex workers, people experiencing addiction or homelessness, mental illness, people just don't really care when they die. And so I think that kind of became an issue here with not fully investigating everything, uh, not looking into evidence, waiting too long to look at evidence. But the real kicker in this case is the police. Um, so as I mentioned earlier with the connection to In Cold Blood, there is a long history in Jennings, Louisiana of violence um, and corruption at the hands of law enforcement and the government. So already at the town's founding, there was like violence against native people, Contra like contracts were broken with native people, uh, corruption left and right rampant racism and a long list of offensives by not only these incompetent police who somehow managed to lose evidence glaze over details of the case but corruption at the hands of these officers including police brutality and trigger warning for the rest of what i'm going to say a lot of sexual assault at the hands of the police so not only did these women and other women in the community experience violence at the hands of the jennings police officers but they also were often the as sex workers the Jennings police officers 
were their clients a lot of the time. And there is a lot of stories about how when these women would be arrested from time to time, whether it be because of sex work or um, drugs, they would be taken advantage of by the police while being held in detention. So many women from Jennings have stories about being assaulted by police officers while they were in jail. The warden being corrupt, the prison guards being corrupt. So you already have all of these layers on it. To add to it, the police there took advantage of the drug de- of the sex workers and had them all as informants for the police of the local drug trade. So all eight victims at one time or another had been informants to the police about the local drug trade in Jennings, which you already have high risk victims because of how they're experiencing poverty, because they are sex workers, which can often be dangerous. Now you have them as informants to the police. We already know the police are corrupt and now they're in danger of being found out for being informants for the pretty, uh, like I said, complex drug trade um, in Jennings. So it's not a good situation and it makes you think, all eight of these women were so similar. How are their murders connected in this way? Well, we're going to get into it. In December 2008, a task force consisting of 14 federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies was formed to solve the killings. And like I said earlier, from the onset of the task force, they thought they were searching for a serial killer. But uh, I'm sure you're not surprised that as the investigation continued and people dug deeper and deeper into the situation, calling in witnesses, speaking to people, looking at all these different connections, law enforcement were continuously implicated by the witnesses. There are statements from two female uh, inmates which talked about potential suspects who were working with the sheriff's office office. In one case, it was to dispose of evidence in the Lopez murder case. And so here's where you really start to see something's going on with the police in this town, because the sergeant who took those statements from those two female inmates learned of this information about evidence being thrown away in the Lopez case, potentially by two suspects working in the sheriff's office. This sergeant was forced out of his job after he took those statements and the allegations then were completely ignored by the remaining law enforcement. So I'm trying to figure out how I want to, I feel like each of these women deserve like their own moment to discuss what happened to them. Um, And if you read the book, they do, he does get more in depth, but for the sake of time, I'm kind of clumping everything together. But I would say that definitely we'll talk about it later when we talk about the books, but like you'll want to actually read. I'm not trying to like remove their individual personalities or anything, Um, but for the sake of time, this isn't going to be a two parter like morbid. I'm kind of lumping everything together just because all of these cases are so similar. And unfortunately, we don't know a lot because of how much ended up being covered up by the police. So I'm trying to think of what I want to talk about next. I mentioned that the Lopez murder evidence being disposed of. Another cop 
is implicated when we found out that the sheriff's office chief criminal investigator, Warren Gary, was accused of purchasing the truck suspected of having used to transport a body to discard evidence. That comes up again later. Things get even more suspicious when the office of like the sheriff's office refuses to comment on the results of DNA testing done of their officers that was also connected to the crimes. So already you're like, something's going on and I'm going to get to the bottom of it. We have a few suspects that are technically not law enforcement. We have Frankie Richard, a local strip club owner and suspected drug dealer he was a he was friends with the sheriff's office so you're also already seeing how they have these women they're taking advantage of these women making them informants of the drug trade but the cops themselves have a weird hand in the drug trade as well like they're friends with one of the like notorious drug dealers and strip club owners in town like what is happening here all all the time i was reading it, i just kept feeling like everything was almost like a business transaction. Like not only was everybody trying to cover their asses and just forgetting that eight women were dead, but it was all about how to keep making money and how to like not lose money, this, that, and the other. I mentioned Frankie Richard. It was also suspected that he had had sex with most of the victims. So that's why they're like, oh, it could be him, right? We don't know, though, because any evidence, obviously, was the the evidence that was discarded by the officers in the Lopez murder was at the behest of Richard. I personally don't think Frankie Richard did it. I think they probably covered up for him for other reasons and other horrible shit that he probably did. But I I don't know. It's very possible. It's possible that he even just murdered Lopez, that perhaps he didn't murder other people. But I personally don't think he did it. The next suspects we have that are also not connected to the police are Byron Chad Jones and Lawrence Nixon, who were charged for Ernstine's murder, the second victim. But the police had waited such a long time to investigate her case that any evidence that could have been useful was no longer viable. So again, we have no way to determine if Brian Chad Jones and Loris Nixon were responsible, but I, again, don't think they were. Meanwhile, (laughs) um, you you have people keep coming in, keep questioning people and being released for a lack of conclusive evidence because these cops did not treat these eight women like they were people. If this had been eight white middle-class women, you know that the case probably would have been investigated well. But because they were largely women experiencing poverty and a lot of them were Hispanic or Black, and there was white women as well, but they obviously were all sex workers, they did not care. There's so many other layers to this that I like. don't know how I would like talk about it in the time we have. Um, but honestly, maybe Morbid, hey girlies, if you're listening, maybe they should do a case study on this. Um, and again, I'll say read the book. Um, there's also a Showtime documentary series about it, 
which I have not watched, but I would like to. This whole time, other people in the town are being murdered. There's murders left and right. And people in the town who are like talking to Ethan Brown when he's investigating in 2011 are like, we started to get nervous. Like people were just dying left and right. And it was often people who may have known something. Um, so there was another guy um, and I think he went by the, his like nickname was like dog and he was always like checking in. Uh, he was, I, I don't remember what his deal was, but like he was shot to death because he had, had always been checking in on all the girls before their death. So anybody who knew anything either wasn't taken seriously as a witness or killed. <laughs> and I want to go back to, cause I, the reason I went off and said all those suspects and then I'm like, I don't think they did it is because I genuinely think that the Jennings police did these murders for what reason? I don't know. Was there just a cold blooded killer among them? I'm not sure. Did one accident happen with the first murder and then they had to cover it up and then every time after that they just kept doing it or did these women know something that they didn't want other people to know because I wanted I I I, I don't want you know Byron Chad Jones Lawrence Nixon Frankie Richard to go off the hook Hannah Connor is another one that it's a woman who is potentially connected to the murders I don't want them to go off the hook because this case is still unsolved. We don't know what happened, but with the next little bits of information, I'm going to say to kind of like close this off. That's the reason I don't think it was them. And I think it was the police. So like I mentioned earlier, the chief investigator from earlier, Warren, bought a pickup truck from an inmate known to be friends with one of the victims. A witness later said that she saw Lopez in the truck on the day of her disappearance. By the time they get their hands on the truck, it had been resold and scrubbed completely, completely cleaned, washed of any evidence. That's super suspicious. And the other reason that I say, I wonder if these women knew something that could get these crooked cops in trouble. Any friends, relatives, confidants, fellow sex workers of these women said that they seemed scared before they disappeared. And these women knew they were in such this. This was just such a fucking terrible situation that these women knew they couldn't get any protection or help from the police. And I think it's probably because the police were in on whatever was going on. So then we have Sergeant Jesse Ewing come in. Kinds of takes over the investigation. He's the only cop in this bitch (laughs) that had his head screwed on straight. So in December 2007, two inmates tell Ewing on tape that they knew about the truck from the Lopez case being sold to the investigator, to investigator Warren, and then being scrubbed of evidence. Ewing did this investigation 
with uh, did this like, you know, talking with these two inmates, sent the tapes to a regional FBI office. So now you think once the FBI are involved, everything's going to be OK, right? The FBI, they're not like other cops. It's going to be fine. The FBI relayed these tapes to the supervisor of the task force that was set up by the Jennings police. And soon afterwards, Sergeant Jesse Ewing was fired. Like, I can't even, (laughs) I can't even. And so basically the two uh, witnesses, their confessions, their info intel was thrown away when um, Sergeant Jesse Ewing was fired. So not only do we have (laughs) Officer Warren to worry about, we have David Barry, a Jennings police officer, but another officer on this specific case, on this task force. He had numerous allegations against him for years, many of which were sexual assault. And he had been previously involved with some of the victims. Like I said, these women were assaulted often when they were arrested and taken into jail. David Barry was connected to some of those assaults. So they fire Sergeant Jesse Ewing, who finally gets information that may be helpful to leading to who killed these killers. Meanwhile, David Barry, who is a prime suspect because he has multiple connections to these women, is not only allowed to walk free, he's allowed to be part of the case. So you have a potential, two potential murderers, Officer Warren and Officer Barry, who are literally inside, quote unquote, solving the case. And he didn't, he knew he was safe too. That's the other thing that makes me sick about David Barry. He would talk to Ethan Brown, the writer of the book, about how he, about his involvement with the victims. He knew nothing could get him. And they had no remorse. And that's why I mentioned that earlier. Like, you know, these men had no remorse for what they did. They didn't feel bad about it at all. And that can be seen at every stage of what happened to these women. Ethan Brown, the writer, was threatened by the police while he was writing this book. Um, they would say things to him like, you're never going to get that book out. It, it, like basically death threats. The other thing that I'll mention that I saw in an article that I read after this was Louisiana Congressman Charles Bustani, a representative of his, so a very close connection to him. Sorry, I just saw your chat. <laughs> Let me just finish this. Um, owned one of the C.D. Jennings hotels and the congressman <laughs> supposedly had sex with three of the victims three of the murder victims at the CD hotel. He was running for Senate. So he actually sues Ethan Brown at a point for defamation because Ethan Brown knew this. He even, so that's what I mean. Every level of this town had corruption. The freaking congressman was in on it. He loses his race for the Senate seat and drops any charges against Ethan Brown. And like I said, for more details, read the book, watch the Showtime documentary, But this case is so convoluted and messed up that it is obviously still unsolved. And unfortunately, I don't know if we'll ever solve who killed the Jeff Davis eight, because to me, it's clear that the police did it or had a huge hand in it. And 
they may not be good at being freaking cops, but they're good at covering up what they did. And there was some one thing I appreciate about, I appreciate how Ethan Brown talked about these women because he treated them like they were people because they were. And he said something along the lines of true justice is not going to be served when somebody in handcuffs. True justice will be served when people experiencing poverty and mental illness and drug addiction aren't put in these situations anymore. Like there is like systemic, it's a systemic problem. These women should have never been in this situation just because of their line of work, just because of how much money they made, um, just because they struggled with illness. It's, that's when true justice, I guess, will be achieved. And it, but until then, you're going to keep seeing cases like this. And that is why these, like, they're called high-risk victims because, like, the way our society works, it just, like, does not care to help people experiencing poverty and mental illness. And then when they die, often at the hands or the fault of corrupt law enforcement, corrupt government, nobody cares to investigate what happened and see justice served. Yeah. Damn. And that's the case of the of the Jeff Davis eight. How many poor women have to die? I know. How come men can just like use women and then be like, oh, sex work trashy. It, it, it's from the beginning of time as well. Like right. always poor women have been. If, if freaking all the women who were accused of witchcraft often were poor women or sex workers. Like, right. What? Single women. Uh, another huge thing with our books that I like that we did is Liza's book is very much um, shows the positive side of true crime and journalism, I guess. Um, and my book you know, when when Truman Capote came down, he literally said, I, I really don't care if this murder gets solved. I just want to write about the effects that it had on this town, which like, um, I don't like that bestie. Right. Whereas, you know, like Ethan Brown is from Louisiana. He got involved in this because he felt it's not that he felt it was personal to him, but he felt that justice needed to be served in one way or another. Yeah. And that the investigation of these women's murders had been so poor that he took it upon himself to do it. There's definitely good true crime uh, journalism and there's bad true crime journalism. I think another good journalist who we should um, definitely just quickly mention is Michelle McNamara, who wrote um, I'll Be Gone in the Dark. And if you don't know, her book kind of helped identify and catch the Golden State killer. So cool. Literally amazing. Um, and it just it also just shows another person who genuinely cared about the victims mm-hmm. and who um, used this horrific thing to the advantage of the victims. Mm-hmm. So that was our morbid episode. Um, We all hope that you very much enjoyed it. And let's talk about next week. Next week. What's next week, Marissa? So in case you don't know, um, April is Autism Awareness Month, which is a 
very important awareness month. It hits home for me. My nephew is autistic. Um, and so I think that more people should not only, um, you know, try to read books about autism and learn about autism, but also support autistic characters in books and autistic authors, um, autistic creators. Um, and so to bring awareness to autistic authors, me and Liza will be reading books by autistic authors. I'm so excited. I'm going to be reading um, The Deep by River Solomon, um, who is a very cool author. This book is Afrofuturist uh, genre. River Solomon is neurodivergent non-binary and black and they're just very cool um so i'm very excited to read this book i will be reading um you know a little thriller horror book that i'm very excited about i'm trying to figure out i'm not gonna lie how to pronounce this author's name because bestie i'm not sure but the book is called even if we break um i believe it is marketed as a uh, young adult book, but we love young adult books. Yes. Um, let's let's see. Hold on. Hello, my name is Marieke Nijkamp. She didn't help me much. I believe it's Marieke Marieke Nijkamp. Yeah, Marieke Nijkamp. That's what I'm going with. Um, and I'm very excited to read this book. Um, um, so that is what we are doing next week. Everyone, please be sure to go and get a book by a um, autistic author. <laughs> I don't know why my um, she forgot how to speak. I did. Very excited. I'm excited, too. I'm very excited. And thank you for listening. Also, go listen to Morbid. And goals and morbid, and we hope you have a good April Fool's Day, and we hope you fool somebody. Fool them. Fool but everyone like, you know, but do it nicely. Yeah, like like put food coloring in the milk. Yeah, or like um, short sheet their bed. Yeah. Or don't be Squidward. Be SpongeBob. Don't be mean, but have no. a good time. Have a good time. And we'll see you yeah. next week. We'll see you. Peace out. Bye. Bye.